Let's pray together. Make us to know your ways, O Lord, and teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. Lord, you are good and upright, therefore you instruct sinners in the way. You lead the humble in what is right and teach the humble his way. So instruct, lead, and teach us by your Spirit now through your word so that we may see Jesus. And hear us, we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in Matthew's Gospel to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And we're considering the genealogy of Christ as we find it in Matthew's Gospel. And so this morning I want to focus on verses 6 through 11. But to remind us of the importance of the whole genealogy, we'll read the whole thing again together. Uh, But we'll be focusing on the middle section. So let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, If anyone's thinking of having children, there's all sorts of good names there uh, to make use of. Uh, Just as a a practical tip. Um, Well, that's not why we read these for us, a big book of baby names. Um, Why do we read these names and why does Matthew have them here? Well, these names are are set forth for a spiritual purpose. That spiritual purpose is laid out in the last verse of the genealogy. That that the, the history of Israel is, in a sense, divided by Matthew into three chapters. And we looked at the first chapter last time, the the first chapter that spanned from Abraham to David. 
Um, and, and in many ways, that was a happy chapter. It went from a sojourning patriarch, Abraham, who had nowhere to call his own, to a settled monarch in David, ruling in peace on his throne. Um, in some ways, that's a very happy chapter. David and his kingdom kind of stand as the, the high water mark of the kingdom of God, um, resting at peace where God gave them rest from all their enemies, and the kingdom flourished under David and under Solomon, his son. Uh, but as we move into the second chapter of this genealogy and the second chapter of Israel's history as Matthew recounts it, it's not such a great picture. It moves from David, who was a, a king crowned at peace over all of his enemies, uh, ruling over a kingdom that was flourishing through the faithfulness of, of David, the son of God, a man after, the God, uh, after God's own heart, um, one who did as God wanted him to do. Um, and it moves to an ending with the deportation to Babylon, the, the king taken captive. And so we might say this chapter moves from the crowned king to the captive king. Um, it's not as such a great story. Um, and so we want to think about what it represents in terms of Israel's history. Uh, we want to think particularly what it tells us about the need of God's people for a king like Jesus. Um, that really, I think, is Matthew's point in giving us these, these names and this genealogy is to remind God's people of the kind of kings they had and of the kind of king they needed. Um, and we want to look at these kings and to look at this history and think once again about what happened in the, in the history of the kingdom of Israel and why God's people needed Jesus as a king so badly. Um, and so we want to look at this history and think about God's kingdom that flourishes in faith that fractures through sin, and that fails without a redeemer. Uh, that's what I think we see in the history of the kings that's presented here. The, it flourishes in faith, it fractures in sin, and it fails without a redeemer. Um, it flourishes in faith. That's where this, this history begins. It begins with the kingdom flourishing. The kingdom flourished under David, and even to a greater extent, under Solomon in his younger years. Uh, that, that really served as the high watermark of the kingdom of God. Maybe not in terms of, of area they possessed, maybe not in terms of the way economic wealth is measured in the kingdom. You might have pointed to other areas in the history of God's people where the kingdom seemed to be doing well. But in terms of spiritually, economically, peace, in terms of peace, this was the high watermark of the people of God. When David reigned and was given rest from all of his enemies and Solomon took over and the kingdom flourished. That's a reminder that things were going well. Things were not perfect, right? We're, we're reminded even in the genealogy that Solomon was, was the son of uh, David by the wife of Uriah. Uh, that reminds us of David's sin. And so we're not pretending that everything was just fine or that David was a perfect king, but we need to remember his kingdom as scripture tells us to remember it. And how is his kingdom summarized in 1 Kings 15 verse 5? We're told David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Um, that he was, a, he was a man who did what God commanded him to do, did not turn from the, to the left or to the right. He was a man after God's own heart, uh, the kind of king that God's people needed. He wasn't perfect, but what characterized his kingship? He was a man of faith, 
He was loyal to the covenant that God had made. He obeyed the covenant. He did what was commanded of him and obeyed the Lord all the days of his life. And we'll see that's what made David such a great king, his faith, his loyalty, and his obedience. And when kings did well, that's what they did well. They had faith in the Lord. They trusted in him. They were loyal to him and to his covenant, and they obeyed what he had commanded them. And when they did well, they flourished. Um, and the kings who didn't do those things are the ones who suffered. Um, where there was no faith and no loyalty and no obedience, the kingdom suffered greatly. But it flourished under David and Solomon. It flourished well in those years. God blessed them um, and blessed those, those works of their hands, just as he had promised to do. Um, and it was a reminder to God's people that as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. When you had good kings, when you had kings that were doing what was pleasing to the Lord, the kingdom flourished. And it taught some, God's people something important about having a good king. Because when you had a good king, things go well in the kingdom. When you don't have a good king, things don't go well in the kingdom. I mean, God was, was working an important truth into God's people. Uh, to make sure that they got that, that picture firmly ingrained in their mind. That when you have a king like David, the kingdom flourishes. Um, and ever since David, God's people were looking for a king like David. Um, there was a great promise made to David about the flourishing of his kingdom. And it looked so much like Solomon was going to bring the promise of that flourishing kingdom. He seemed in so many ways in his younger days to bring out that kingdom, to bring it to flourishing, to use his wisdom and to grow the kingdom in peace and prosperity. Um, but we know that, that it began to fail under Solomon. That Solomon in his younger years was not the same as Solomon in his older years. Um, and that kingdom that so flourished in the faith began to fracture through sin. Solomon began well, but he didn't end well. Right? We were reminded in Scripture that as he grew old, he took many foreign wives, and they led him into idolatry, just as God had warned his people that they would do. Um, and Solomon was led into terrible idolatry, setting up and serving other gods. And on account of that sin... God said the kingdom would be torn out of his hand. On account of that sin, God said in 1 Kings 11, 9 through 11, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Um, this is a reminder to us that age doesn't necessarily bring wisdom. Um, I remember an old pastor telling a room full of younger pastors, he said, there were things in my life that I used to think I would just outgrow. Um, you know, sins in my life that I would just outgrow. And surely when I'm older, I won't do these things anymore. And he said, that's not the way scripture tells us to work. 
You don't just outgrow sin, you have to mortify sin. And that was good advice for all of us as younger ministers coming up. I think we sometimes operate that way. You can just sort of outgrow or outrun sin by age. And Solomon's reminder to us, it doesn't work that way. Um, That we have to fight against sin all the days of our lives and struggle against it. And his sin is what led to the first fracturing of the kingdom. Uh, The unified kingdom of Israel only lasts one and a half kings, or really two kings. And it's his son Rehoboam, whose name we read in the genealogy, it's under his reign that the kingdom is split in half. Ten tribes go away from him in the north and become the kingdom of Israel. And only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stay with Rehoboam and are his kingdom as the king of Judah. And for the rest of this history, these kings are known as the kings of Judah because they only rule over those two tribes not the whole kingdom, because the kingdom fractured on account of sin. Um, And as we read through this list of names in Matthew's genealogy, we can remember when the kingdom's fractured again on account of sin. And under King Hezekiah, who ruled in Judah, the ten kingdoms of Israel were carried off into um, captivity by the Assyrian army. Um, And the kingdom of Israel was effectively destroyed. That happened under the reign of Hezekiah, another fracturing in the kingdom that came about on account of sin. And then finally, this genealogy ends with the final fracturing of the kingdom on account of sin as the last king, Jeconiah, reigns and God's people are taken off to captivity in Babylon. Uh, Jeconiah is also Jehoiachin in the Old Testament. Um, And the kingdom falls apart under his reign. And so we're reminded how this kingdom continues to fracture on account of sin. And what is God teaching us through this pattern? What what can we learn from it? Um, Well, if we look through this list of names, one of the things that strikes us immediately is there's no discernible pattern. Um, If you know who are good kings and who are evil kings in this list, there are good kings that have good sons. There are good kings who have evil sons. There are evil kings who have evil sons, and there are evil kings who have good sons. There's no no discernible pattern that we can point to, that this is why this happened. You know, they just, they had a bad start and can never recover from it. We can't make any excuses like that. What's clear from this list is that every king was responsible for the state of his kingdom. Every, Every king was responsible for his own faith or lack thereof, and his own lack or loyalty to the Lord and his own obedience or lack thereof. Uh, This is important for us too. There's no excuses in life um, for why we serve or don't serve the Lord. You can't say that because I had a bad upbringing, I can't come to the Lord. There are people who were were kids of the the evilest kings and and were good kings in the Lord's sight. Um, There's no one who's so far from the Lord that they can't be saved. Um, and th- this, this list encourages us in that. There's no one who has such a bad beginning or has so far from the Lord that they can't be called to himself and saved. Uh, what this list also reminds us of is we shouldn't presume on the grace of God. Uh, that just because you grow up in a good household or are children of good parents doesn't necessarily mean you're a believer. You have to put your faith and trust in Christ. Uh, God doesn't have grandchildren. Uh, he has children. And so all of us are called to put our faith and trust 
in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how old we are, who our parents are. And this list reminds us of that. There's no discernible pattern. They all, they all stood or fell by the way they related to the Lord, whether they put their trust in him or walked away from him. Um, and every one of these evil kings who were told did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, they all showed the same problems. Um, if we had the time, we could go through and talk about each one of them, but we don't have the time to do that. Uh, so I'll summarize their lives. What do we read about all of the evil kings in this list? Their hearts were not wholly true to the Lord. They served and sacrificed to foreign gods, and they did what was evil in God's sight. They lacked faith, they lacked loyalty, they lacked obedience. Um, and that was true of, of all of those who are evil in this list. There are seven evil kings and there are eight good kings. Uh, but all seven of the evil kings did the same things. Uh, Rehoboam, Abijah, Joram, Ahaz, Manasseh, Amos, Jehoiach, Jeconiah, they all did the same things. They turned their hearts from the Lord, they served foreign gods, um, and they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And because of this, the kingdom was afflicted and eventually swallowed up. Um, we read in 1 Samuel 12, 14 through 15, this was the warning that all kings were given. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. And really Samuel there is just repeating the warnings in the covenant given by Moses. This is what will happen to evil kings. And the evil came to its head in a particular way under the kingship of Manasseh. Um, he's the one who did the worst of the worst as it's presented to us in scripture. Um, there, there are many kings who did what was evil in the Lord's sight, but there's no one who did the evil that Manasseh did in the sight of the Lord. We're told in scripture that he led the people to do more evil than the Canaanites who the Lord had destroyed before them. Um, he rebuilt the high places. He built altars for Baal and Asherah. He built altars to false gods in the temple and its courtyard. Uh, he set up images of false gods in the temple itself. He consulted fortune tellers, mediums, and necromancers, and he offered his son as a human sacrifice. He did more evil in the sight of the Lord than anyone had done before him, and it was on account of his wickedness that the Lord declared destruction on the kingdom. We read in 2 Kings twenty-two sixteen through 17, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. Um, that's the state of things under Manasseh. Um, and the whole fall of the kingdom is sadly summarized in Second Chronicles 36, 15 to 16. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. It's a sad account 
of how God's people lived before him and how they responded to his compassionate pleas to turn to him and to be saved. We see the, the, the kingdom continuing to fracture until God's wrath can't be quenched and until there is no remedy. So is there any hope? Right? The wrath that can't be quenched. Merry Christmas. Right? Uh, happy holidays. Right? Is that, is that sort of where we're left? Is that the whole point of, of this? Is, is to remind us of how bad the history of God's people was? Well, no. It, there's a reminder that there's, there's hope. That the kingdom can't survive without a redeemer. But it's shot through with reminders of hope, of grace, and that godly kings can offer restoration and hope to God's people. Because the story is not just the story of evil kings. The story is also the story of good kings. Um, there, are, there are eight good kings, counting David and Solomon in this list. And four that followed them were good, and two, of the, and two that followed them were great. Um, and we're reminded in this list of people, not just of the good kings, but also of the great kings. Um, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, and Jotham um, all were good kings. We're told in Scripture that they did what was good in the eyes of the Lord. They did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. They were good kings. What kept them from being great kings? What kept them from going from good to great? Um, well, they were personally righteous, but they permitted unrighteousness in the kingdom. We're told of all four of those kings that they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but they failed to tear down the high places where God's people were offering false worship. It seems that they were personally righteous, but they permitted unrighteousness. And that's what kept them from being great kings. Um, the two great kings in this list after David and Solomon are Hezekiah and Josiah. They were great reformer kings who came in the midst of evil, in the midst of disaster, and turned to the Lord with all their hearts. We could say that Hezekiah was the trusting reformer. He's remembered as one who trusted the Lord. He reigned about 250 years after David. He, ran, he ruled when Assyria took the northern kingdoms captive. Um, and he was a righteous king who ruled at the time of Isaiah. Um, about 250 years after David, but he's commended to us as one who was a son of David. He did as David did. And he finally does what all the good kings had failed to do since David. So think of that, 250 years Kings had permitted this worship of other gods on high places. And Hezekiah finally, after 250 years, came and tore it all down. Um, he tore down all of the false worship, all the high places, all the idolatry. And he's well remembered to us in scripture. This is the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18, 5 through 7. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments of the Lord that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. Isn't that a wonderful testimony that the Lord gives to the rule of this king? Again, he was not perfect, 
but he was a great king. He was a trusting reformer who trusted in the Lord. The other great king was Josiah. Um, He was the reformer, we might say, was the turning reformer that turned God's people back to him after 57 years of rule by Manasseh and Amos. Um, He also was a son of David who didn't turn aside to the right or to the left. Uh, He led to one of the greatest reforms and recoveries of the proper worship of God in the kingdom, uh, destroying all that idolatry that we'd heard about Manasseh setting up. Um, And so much that it was said of him by the Spirit in 2 Kings 23, 25. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Uh, These were great kings, great reformers. But you know what the next verse says? It says, Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. Um, what, what is God teaching us through this? Good kings can come and they can bring peace and prosperity. Great kings can come and reform the church, can reform the kingdom um, after God, but what can they not do? They can't redeem them from his anger. <laughs> Josiah did great things, Hezekiah did great things, but none of the great things they did was able to put away the sin of the great evil that Manasseh did. And so what are God's people being taught? We need another kind of king. We need a king like David, we need a king like Josiah, we need a king like Hezekiah, but a king that can actually put out the wrath of God, right? who can quench God's wrath against us for our sin, who can actually provide the remedy that God's people need for the evil that's been done. Um, We need a redeemer, not just a reformer. We need a redeemer. And that's what the good news is that Matthew is announcing. He's saying, what what does that history of the kings remind us of? We need a good king. We need a king that can bring peace. We need a king that can bring prosperity. We need a king that can put out the wrath of God. We need a king that can provide the remedy of God's people. And the glorious good news that Matthew is sharing is that king is Jesus Christ. Here finally is a king who is not just a good king, not even a great king, but is the great God of heaven and earth come to rule in the midst of his people. To do what God's people desperately needed and who no king could do for them. Give them a peace that lasts. Give them a prosperity that couldn't be interrupted. Lead them in the way that they should go so that the kingdom would always flourish. Because what what did we learn over and over again? As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. Which is not great news until you have a king like Jesus. But when he comes as king, as he goes, so goes the kingdom. He'll bring in a peace and prosperity that can't fail. And that's ultimately why the kingdom doesn't fail completely, despite all the difficult things they face, despite all the evil that they go through. That's why the kingdom doesn't fall completely. That's why the line doesn't end with Jeconiah, carried captive into Babylon. That's why it goes on. It goes on through a list of people we generally don't know which makes next week's sermon somewhat interesting to navigate. 
It's mostly names we don't know. Why? Because they weren't kings. They, were, they lived in the time of wreck and ruin of the kingship. They were kings in name only. But kings without kingdoms, kings without crowns. Um, all the way up to Joseph and then his son Jesus. Um, we, we see this, this wonderful line, but we see reminders of grace shot through this terrible history. Because all of those great kings heard of judgment that was coming after them. Right? Solomon heard that there was going to be judgment, but it wasn't going to come in his day. Um, and Hezekiah was told there's going to be judgment coming, but it's not in your day. And Josiah was told there was judgment coming, but not in his day. And, and so what's, what's the gracious reminder there? It's, it's judgment, but not yet. Judgment, but not now. Um, judgment, but not all. Right? God says the, to, to Solomon, the kingdom will be torn from you and given to your servant. But for the sake of his promise to David, he doesn't tear the whole kingdom from him. He, gives him, he, re, he lets him retain a portion of the kingdom because of the promise that he'd made to David. The judgment, but not all. And judgment, but not forever. There's judgment that comes on the kingdom on account of their sins and the sins of their king, but it will not be forever. It's a wonderful promise that God makes in in 1 Kings 11.39, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. There's grace shot through this, you see. There's hope shot through this. Why? Because of the gracious promise that God made to David. My promise to David will not fail. Um, There is a lamp, a light coming for David. 2 Kings 8.19 says, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. He promised that there would be a light in the kingdom. There would be a light on David's throne. And that's in a lot of ways what we celebrate this time of year that the world that was dwelling in deep darkness has seen a great light. And it was a greater light than God's people, I think, could even have expected from the promise that was made to David. Because they knew a lamp was coming. They had no idea that it would be the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. They had no idea that the glory would be that bright, that the kingship would be that good, and that the king would be that glorious. And that really is the story that that Matthew wants to communicate to us. That God's people needed a good king. Not just a great king. They needed someone who was really a man after God's own heart. And God promised that one will come who will rule. And who will rule in the midst of my people. And who will be God himself ruling in the midst of his people. And that's what Matthew's promising in the genealogy. That's what Matthew is celebrating. God's people needed a certain kind of king, a conquering redeemer, and he's come. The Lord Jesus Christ will do for God's people what they needed doing. He will quench the wrath of God against the kingdom. He will provide the remedy that's needed by offering himself 
as a sacrifice on the cross. And he will rise again triumphant to take up his rule over his people and to assure his people that he brings in a kingdom whose peace will know no end. There's no end of the peace and the prosperity of that kingdom. Matthew's celebrating that that king has come. We remember at this time of year that that king has come. And we remember the promise of scripture that he's coming again in glory. And that he's coming soon. Um, That's the hope that God's people cling to. That we have been provided the king we need and that he's coming. We pray that he comes quickly. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the picture we have in the scripture of how desperately your people needed good kings. How thankful we are for the faithful kings you raised up by your grace, but we are reminded that they were not the kings we need, that Christ was the king we need, the true son of David and even greater than David, who David would call Lord. We thank you that he has come into the world once to save sinners. We thank you that he's coming again to deliver those who are eagerly waiting for him, and we pray that he would come quickly. And that as we think about his first coming at this time of year, you would also turn our hearts and minds to meditate on his second coming and to rejoice to know that such a king is coming, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear us, we pray in his name. Amen.